This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Auth0, authentication made simple for developers. Modern authentication and identity can be hard, but Auth0 makes it easy. With Auth0, you can enable login with any social provider, have multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and passwordless login all at the flip of a switch. Find out how to add authentication to your Angular 1 or 2 app in under 10 minutes at Auth0.com forward slash Angular. Hello and welcome to Angular Air. On this week's episode, I have the one and only Justin Schwartzberger. Hey, how's it going? Justin is joining me today to talk about the latest and greatest in the world of Angular. And it's been a couple months since we've done one of these discussion shows, so there is a ton to talk about. Um, To get started with, uh, let's actually go over our sort of just personal updates of kind of some of the stuff that we've been working on and what's going on in our own worlds, and then we'll get into some of the uh, deeper Angular news. So, Justin... Uh, to start off with, uh, what have you been up to? Where, what have you been doing, and what are you working on? Sure. Well, um, first things first, I just got back from Vegas. Um, not that kind of trip, though. I was there for my daughter's uh, dance convention. So I spent a week actually outside of Vegas in uh, Henderson uh, um, doing her convention thing. But while I was there, I decided to pull the trigger on picking up a MacBook Pro, dive into that world. I've been working on a a PC for a while, kind of wanted to start uh, just feel out that whole Mac experience. Oh my God, man, you're, you're one of those people that are still on a PC. That's unbelievable. Still on a PC, right? Well, not anymore now. So, you know, I, I put a ring on it, picked that thing up while I was in Vegas, um, dove into it. So uh, pretty exciting on that. Are you going to go like full force and like do Vim and everything like that now too? I, mean, no, I like don't think I'll approach Vim. I, you know, I don't know. I, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, doing some terminal stuff and stuff like that. So getting kind of, feel, I don't know, it's exciting too. You know, I kind of dive into something uh, new in your environment as well. I don't know. Everything's so changing in the web development space that, you know, you got to be excited about change in this industry, right? And so it's always fun to play with new stuff. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. But the experience on that thing with the, I mean, the, the touchpad experience for working on a, a laptop device is amazing with the three-finger swipe and everything. It just makes working on a single monitor laptop experience, just it's hands down the best. So pretty excited about that. Um, also doing some, uh, form stuff lately. Um, I was had a blog post just yesterday about migrating to the new, uh, forms API. So working out the details in terms of, uh, what those changes mean. And we have a, your whole forms already built out and how to use these new, uh, paradigms, naming conventions, stuff like that. Uh, also going to be diving into uh, authentication here um, this week in terms of using Auth0 with Angular 2, trying to figure out single sign-on, um, also trying to figure out how to do multiple app, uh, login across multiple app instances. Let's say you have a, a customer you know, account management app plus uh, some other tool and have that customer experience persist that login across these different Angular apps that represent these these different pieces of, of a global platform sort of thing. So I'll be diving into that. Quick question on that, because, you know, Auth0 is one of our sponsors. We love Auth0. <laughs> and uh, I, I use it at Get Human as well. But I'm just curious, uh, because it sounds like you guys are just starting to use them. So what actually prompted you to decide to use that instead of your own kind of custom solution? 
Yeah, so we're uh, we're looking a lot at the Azure stack um, in terms of leveraging stuff there, and we were looking at their Active Directory support and and what it would take to kind of uh, leverage their single sign-on experience. And it was pretty uh, complicated to keep kind of up and going. A lot of stuff you had to hand roll yourself. They're just on the game, you know. I mean, they have example code, they have you know stuff set up. I mean, you could get spun up with using Angular two and that thing. It, you know, 30 minutes and it's just so quick. And then, so it just kind of takes out authentication is always that big pain, right? In in terms of web development, you've been doing it for this many years. You're like, Oh gosh, I got to add authorization. Now, how come after, you know, all these years, we don't have just a simple, Hey, can I just plug this thing in and get ready to go? I don't want to build another authentication system, right? Uh, you always end up having to do that with each new app. And so with this experience, it was really cool is out of the way it's just it was pretty quick to to set that thing up and then you still have the customization of making it unique in your own so uh, really felt like a, a a win on all all sides and then it has the whole bearer token thing so it really fits well into uh, angular 2 and the http and everything like that yeah it helps provide a little bit of kind of security feeling not not just security for uh that uh feeling like you're you don't have to worry about some of that stuff because you have private information and you're less likely to be exploited because you have you're using a service that just focuses on solving that problem you know what i mean Right. That's a big thing is that, you know, you create, you roll your own, then you got to worry about all that other stuff, right? That comes into play there. And it's like, okay, good. We didn't broker that off. We don't have to worry about that. Somebody else is focusing on that. They got specialists and, and experts that are, that are focused on that. And you can just kind of take that and adapt that. The other thing it does too, is it provides that, um, you know, you have that scenario of signing on, but then you also have that scenario of you have to provide this token to access your API data and stuff like that as, as people are in your app, right? And that security there. And they have a story for, for both of those layers. Um, so that plays nice as well. Definitely. And you mentioned about the form um, blog post that you wrote recently. Was that, it was this week, right? Yeah, I just put that up uh, yesterday. Yeah, so. let's, let's dive into that because I, I thought it was really interesting and I think it's one of those things that a lot of people uh, are interested in the Forms API in general because you know typically if you're building a single page app, many single page apps have a form somewhere within the app. I know that we do in, in many places, and it's always the same types of problems you run into. Like just speaking more generally, not forget about even like Angular specific form stuff. Just like in a more general level a lot of the pain points usually center around like data validation and, you know, security and um, some of that type of stuff. So uh, I'm interested to, you know, for people that may not have read the blog post yet, can you kind of give us kind of a high level of, um, well, first, I guess the angular approach, angular two approach to forms and then some of the subject, some of the stuff that you got, you talked about in your blog post. Sure, sure. So um, you know, one of the things I mentioned in there is is thinking about over the times of all the stuff that I've built over the years, it's kind of hard to imagine something that didn't have some level of some form input or something, right? It's almost like always there. Um, 
And so, and it, you know, the minute you start doing any of this form stuff, you, you absolutely run into, you know, it's not just collecting the data, right? It's not as simple as that. You have the validation, like you mentioned, you have uh, data playing together, uh, other input fields playing together with each other. You know, there's this composition of your entire data collection that rules around it, you know, an experience around it. Um, so you end up writing, you know, in the past, you end up writing JavaScript to handle that sort of thing, right? And so with the Angular forms module, um, even pre the current one where they broke it out in the separate module and bundle, um, they still provided these uh, scenarios to help you do that, you know, with, with less impact of, of you having to write all this boilerplate code and, and the um, platform gave that to you. So all these common things, this data binding, all this other sort, sort of stuff, validation and stuff like that. Um, and then with the, the blog post, I'm basically covering how um, if you've already built with the previous form stuff that was in the common uh, bundle, like how do you now migrate to the new forms API? That's its own separate module, separate bundle. Right. And then kind of talking about a little bit touching on, you know, is that a benefit or not? Like why, you know, there's a lot of people uh, bumming about the fact that it changed recently. Right. And it's kind of this changes, naming changes, a couple of different things. But I mean, if you really look at it in, in terms of choices, uh, it, it's probably a good thing that this thing got bundled into its own separate thing. So yeah, you probably don't run too much where you, you don't have form elements, but it's there. If you don't, you, you can totally not include it. Right. You just don't bring that, that module in. Um, so you can build your apps, choose to have it or not. Right. I'm just curious. Do you typically prefer uh, like a programmatic driven form or the the more declarative version of forms? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. I, I think that that's one, and that's one of the challenges I think right now with in Angular too is there's kind of a couple different ways you can build your forms. Right, you can do this template driven approach. You can do this model driven approach. I, I lean towards the model driven approach. Uh, because you, you're crafting out your form representation, you know, in, in your component code, uh, it's testable. It's you know th- that functionality is all all there, and then you're just binding it up to your template or your view essentially at that point, um, and then you you're able to just you know work with that form um, rules and and constructs outside of a template, you know, sort of thing. So I think that fits really well. Very cool. We're going to take a quick break to hear about ThoughtRam. ThoughtRam. Extend your memory. Want to get up and running with the Angular framework, but don't have the time to read through all the documentation and tutorials on the internet? ThoughtRam's Angular Masterclass may be perfect for you. Check it out today at thoughtram.io forward slash training. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, anything else in the blog post that you thought was uh, interesting? That, uh, I, I think people should check it out, first of all, for sure. Um, but any, any other major points that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, so I just wanted to try and showcase. Um, and and it, there's more to it. I, I think I'm probably going to write another post that kind of de- details more. Like This one covers really like how you do the, the model-driven approach uh, when you're building out your form representation in the component. You know, how to use... If, if you were using... Uh, uh, control and control array and control group and and how now you're using form control and form array and form group for those classes. Or if you're using the form builder, you kind of didn't have to make a whole lot of changes uh, if you're leveraging that that API. Uh, and then how on the on the template side, how to use those named controls when you bind them up to like your inputs and stuff like that. How to how to use the the new directive names to 
to map those one-to-one sort of thing. And that, right. that was really just covering kind of those, that core part. And then there's a whole nother part, which would be how do you now do validation or, or represent, show your validated field information in your template. There's a little bit differences on that. That'd be another post. Very cool. But at a high level, uh, do you feel that the forms API is really solid now and like all good and just like some small things that they're cleaning up or is it still, you know, quite a ways to work because, you know, when we talk about uh, one of the things we'll get in later is uh, sort of the readiness of Angular 2 and, and how far along it is. And I, I feel like um, as you dive into certain areas, there's definitely some things that are like really solid and others that are still, you know, coming along. Where, where would you put, forms API uh, on that sort of scale? I mean, I feel good about it. I think that it's, uh, you know, the naming changes, I think, make more sense now. These things that were called control and control array, now it's form control, form array. I think it, it'll it help maybe clarify that. Uh, when you go, when somebody goes to look and go, well, how am I going to build my form out? There was kind of just these multiple stories and, and kind of complexity to it. And I think that this is kind of funneling it into a more focused of, Here's, here's these things that make sense. So I think that that's good. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of stuff was there in terms of the, the validation. You can add validators. You can, you know, group these things. Uh, some of the things that they've finished up with, like some things like radio controls and stuff like that, um, those are getting dialed in now more where it's easier to work with those. You'd have to do this uh, radio button state before and kind of compose your, if you wanted to represent a radio button, and now it's a lot lighter to be able to do that. Um, so I think it's, uh, it feels pretty good to me in terms of, of kind of where I would want it. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Uh, anything else as far as general updates that you wanted to touch on? No, I think that's, that's about it. Okay, cool. How about you? So from, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, on my side, it's been a busy like month or so. It's been crazy. Um, the biggest thing I think I mentioned the last discussion show is that we're trying to raise money for Get Human now. Uh, that is actually going really well. We're actually right at the end of the process. So uh, that should hopefully be finishing soon. And then I can focus more of my efforts you know, back on development, like I, the thing I sort of love to do. It's, it's sort of been a big learning experience like all around. And I have like five like big blog posts kind of queued up uh, on various aspects of this. You know, one, one thing that is, I, I think, interesting is that, you know, as developers, sometimes we kind of underappreciate how uh, awesome it is when you can focus on something, when you just ha- kind of have like one project and you're just, you need to get that done. And there might be a lot of work, but you don't have to context switch. You don't have to like fight to try to like, get working on the one thing that you're working on. And uh, I found it probably uh, more tough than I expected uh, having these other things that are higher priority that kind of prevent me from doing the thing that I'm like been trying to do and in, in building out certain things or whatever. And, and now as I start to get more time again to, you know, get back into build mode, like I uh, appreciate it a lot more. Uh, so uh there's that. And then, so for the stuff that I've been building, there's a couple of interesting things I've been working on actually at work. One of them has been, uh, we've been always trying to improve the performance of our 
externally facing web application. I mean, performance is like a never ending, uh, task, right? Like no matter how good you do it, there's always like something. And so one thing I've been focusing on, you know, the past couple of weeks because it has an impact on our SEO and thus on like some of, um, our bounce rate and other other things that you know we really care about for our publicly facing you know flagship website is just that initial page load time, which is part of the reason for you know the server rendering and all that. But one of the things I've been getting into is you know stuff where if you use like Google Page Speed and it like really breaks down all the little details of how the Google search engine and how browsers try to render your app quickly. Like if you really pay attention to that, it you start to dive into these like really deep areas and how to Im- improve that like initial load time. And so uh, basically I had to like, you know, pull apart like all sorts of stuff within the app and uh, restructure. Some of the bigger, bigger things were, you know, essentially deferring all JavaScript, you know, basically lazy loading everything. Uh, so you, obviously that relies on having uh, a server rendered view that is, you know, pretty full and complete and loads quickly from, from the server. So uh, you had to kind of do a lot of work on that. And then um, with CSS, it's an even trickier thing than JavaScript because with CSS, you need to have inline CSS that covers just the, not even the initial page, but the above the fold initial page, right? You, you don't care about stuff below the fold for the initial load. And then everything else, lazy loaded. Uh, so I, that was really tough because if you think about it, you know, for JavaScript, it's, it, it has its own issues, of, but at least if you're, if you're doing server rendering and then lazy loading everything for JavaScript, that's just a matter of packaging and just you know, making sure everything kind of loads afterwards. But for CSS to do that like split, uh, that can be really complex, uh, you know, especially if you're trying to like build it, do that from the ground up. Like that, that's sort of where I started to work from is like, okay, how can I from the ground up figure out all the dependencies of like for this particular page, every CSS that's needed above the fold for that thing. And I'm sure there's a way to do that. Somebody's probably start, worked on that before. I don't it just, have you ever tried to do that before? Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a challenge, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we were talking about it actually this morning with coworker Jamie. You know, we were talking about uh, Webpack and how that plays into like CSS as well as like SAS, SAS compiling and stuff like that. And how your strategy start thinking about, you know, if you're doing SAS and you're doing imports everywhere and all of a sudden you're like, well, that really doesn't fit into these bundles and these packages and how do you now wow you know it's like well, that's, that's why that. you know just as an aside for like a future thing not what well, I, I decided not to do this now because it's way too much uh i do see more value in that like kind of inline css type um frameworks because like job css in js type stuff because that allows you to use like more of the legit webpack dependency tree management like if you have it in JS, then like it can manage that better and it's easier to pick out what's needed just for that thing. But uh, so since that wasn't going to be feasible, I instead took it from the other angle. And there's this tool that I will include in the show notes um, that basically allows you to capture, like almost like screen capture, the CSS that's used above the fold. So the way the way it works is that you got to run, you got to first run an instance of your application using not lazy loaded CSS. 
uh, and then use this tool to like just it crawls your site and captures for this route. Here's the inline CSS used for the bubble fold on this particular page, and then you know saves it to a file or whatever. And then you have to um, you know uh, figure out just a system of how to hook all that together and, and use just that on that page, and then you know obviously lazy load everything else. Uh, so that all works now. The, the one one thing, like last thing after all that, um, was fonts. Uh, I had a super big issue with fonts because you sort of are faced with these uh, couple things that are really annoying. If you're doing a custom font, this is like so. If you're doing normal fonts, like non-custom uh, regular fonts that are built in with the browser, then there's no issues. But if you're doing a custom font of any sort. It begins to be a problem because fonts are really big, and if you when you do inline uh, CSS, it'll p- try to pull that in, but the font is so huge that it'll slow down the initial page load. If you uh, push that off to the um, you know load it after the fact, then the problem you run into is that you get jank because uh, basically there's an algorithm in your in the browser that if it's loading one font and then there's a certain amount of change like on the screen. It does like a full screen screen refresh and uh, font is one of those things that like, it'll just like totally jank the entire page. Uh, so even though it'll load quickly, then you see this like flash and it's really bad and ugly or whatever. Uh, so the thing that I finally, I, I tried a, a bunch of different variations. I tried inlining fonts, which is a whole other nightmare because it's like so huge. There, there is a way, by the way, um, I know I'm like diving into this a lot, but I've been thinking about this like crazy the past couple weeks. Um, I don't know if I showed you this, Justin, or if you saw my, my tweet on this, but there's actually a way that you can subset a font and inline it. So you can like pick out just specific characters in, in the, the mm-hmm. custom font file. And like, it's, it's still like 8K or 10K. So it's, it, I mean, which is, not insignificant, um, but at least it's more manageable for inline stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what I ended up doing was um, there's actually a, a particular way, which I, I won't be able to really describe that well, but because I was using a Google font and because um, most browsers do a good job of ca- caching already um, a lot of the Google custom fonts, if you, instead of specifying... Um, just like the point to the initial font reference, like uh, there's a lower level uh, pointer to some of the specific Google font, like W uh, O F W F F F fonts. Um, basically, you, you got to like go one level down, and you're still pointing to something externally. It still takes some time to load, but I guess because of the fact that it's uh, a Google font and it's a lot of browsers already cache those. Uh, we actually didn't see any degradation in performance or whatever for that. Um, so that's what I've sort of relied on so far, which has been working well. But phew. All right, I got a, que- I got a question, though, before yeah. you stop yeah. on that. So uh, the above-the-fold stuff, what what do you determine or what did you make in determination of uh, this is where our fold line is? I mean, you're talking about different devices, different browsers, different you know yeah. um, monitor sizes, like, are you taking a, a denominator and then rolling with it, or do you are you actually trying to make different you know media queries essentially for different sizes and no, that's that a good question. And uh, I think in the ideal scenario that like somehow you figure out and and you return. I mean, the sort of nirvana is that the server 
understands what device is trying to access it based off of the uh, headers sent in the request and then customizes, you know, how it's sent back. Uh, we're not going that far. <laughs> that, that, I guess that there's, like I said, performance, it's never ending. Right, and right. so that's another thing. But no, I, I just basically took, um, uh, I tried a couple different things out. I'm like, okay, 900 pixel height is where it's at. So you can you can basically set in this tool that, that captures the CSS, you can set a specific height. Um, so I just defined it as 900 pixels at uh, like 1200 pixel width and just went with that, you know. And uh, so it, it will, it will uh, obviously not be perfect for every single device and every single whatever, but it's good enough, right. which is probably the saying that people have to tell themselves the most when it comes to performance. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. Totally. Oh, and one, one other aspect of that before I move on is that um, as part of that, I actually had to um, make changes to the Angular 2 preboot library that I've built, which transfers events from the server view to the client view. Before, I didn't care about it that much with my, um, because the stuff I've been working on is an Angular 1 solution. Uh, it's not Angular 2 yet, although that's like in the pipeline. Um, so I had to actually convert Preboot to be utilized with Angular 1. Um, and in the process, I made it, you know, now basically it'll work with anything. It, not just um, before it was pretty tied to Angular 2, um, but now Preboot will work with Angular 1 or just Service Worker or um, React or whatever. Um, so that's pretty cool. Nice, nice. We're going to break for a moment for a message from Angular Class. This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Angular Class. If you're looking to learn the latest and greatest in modern web development techniques, or you need Angular 2 training, then sign up today at angularclass.com. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, and then the last thing I was going to mention was just uh, I've also been working on um, our admin dashboard, which the only interesting thing there I was going to mention is that, uh, you know, this is, you know, again, Angular 1. We haven't converted all of our stuff to Angular 2 yet. Uh, so this is Angular 1. And uh, it reminds me, whenever you deal with dashboards, I feel like, and, and lots of data is where you run into all of the traditional stuff that people complain about for Angular 1 because, that's where, like, the default thing of just throwing everything up on the screen, like, it run into issues because there's so many different um, ng repeats and bindings and whatever. Like, we have, like, 9,000 things, you know, uh, I mean, you know, many tens of thousands of bindings, um, and it just slows to a crawl. So I, I, then I'm like, it, you know, working on this, and I'm like, okay, uh, we got to expedite all the stuff we're doing with Angular 2. Right, <laughs> right. Can't just go to on push everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway. All right. So that's, uh, that's it from my side. Um, let's dive into some of the Angular news. Uh, you know, one thing uh, right off the bat I was going to mention, and, and sort of the driver for some of this um, is uh, they do publish on a weekly basis the Angular team notes. So if anyone listening has not read that before, doesn't keep up with it on a regular basis. The, the notes from the team meetings, the official team meetings that the Angular team has at Google, uh, you definitely should. They're really, it's interesting. It's, it's good to know kind of what's going on there. 
Um, so I'll include a link for that in the show notes. Uh, so one of the things that they were talking about this week was the new, new, new router, which is, is that like the official name, Justin, the new, new, new router, three news or what? what, what? Yeah. New, new, new. Is it router or router? I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, that's right. Router, router, router. Um, so what are your thoughts on the new router? I know, I know you're starting to use it at work, right? Yeah, so we just uh, switched to it, and I got the rundown this morning on what that switch entailed and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, it, I think it's good. Uh, it's got some changes that are definitely uh, valuable there. Uh, the, that whole DSL thing in terms of using router links uh, before we had this named router, you know, um, that you ended up using the, in the DSL for your router links. Now it's just a, a pathing type of thing. It looks really familiar to what you're used to in terms of a, a URL structure as well as just any other type of routing platform that you might have used. Uh, so that kind of falls in line with that. Um, some of the, the the kind of the decoupling of it from yeah, this route config that's alongside right on top of your, that you're decorating your components with. And now you can kind of have this router um, table essentially built in a separate file. Kind of makes it easier to work with and understand, I think. Um, the child routes. Uh, I think a lot of it got kind of just cleaner and easier to kind of gronk, you know, sort of thing. Um, and then I think some of the potential there with the, the lazy loading of, of the routes or, or being able to define like components with a string, you know, how, I don't know how that's going to unfold yet, but it sounds like there might be a possibility there where you're really not, you know, when you, when you define these routes before with a, a strong type name component, then you end up getting, you know, module loading of all of your components down the tree. And so you define all your routes beforehand with all these named components, then really that first route gets loaded and all the children get loaded. Now you're basically system JS or something like that, bringing in all those components at, at that given moment, right? That very first one loads. Now you got all. And so the ability to say, look, I've got three features in my app and I really don't want all the sub children components loading up in that feature until somebody actually goes to that feature. So, so is, is that something you've tried to get working yet? Um, we haven't tried that part yet. Huh? Uh, I think that that's, we're, we're talking about that. I, I think that it's not part of the current release package that's out there. Yeah. I'm actually looking, I think you're right. Um, I think it says after RC five. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right that it isn't there yet. Um, but no, th that will definitely be useful. I mean, just speaking back to what I, I just talked about this custom solution that I had to implement for lazy loading, which was such a pain. It would be so amazing to have it just kind of built into the framework and easy way to do that. Right. And then what about uh, the guards thing? Like, I, I know that um, actually, who wrote the blog post on the the guards in in routes? Uh, let's look that up. Did that come out of ThoughtRam? I think it came out of ThoughtRam, right? Yeah. I don't know who wrote it. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. It is the latest ThoughtRam blog. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Did you get a chance to read that one? Yeah, check that out. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, those are nice. I mean, especially with the, I think the fact now we can uh, do DI for that dependency injection for stuff. So now you have the availability of bringing in, you know, your services and stuff to do all that, that logic in there. Uh, whereas before you couldn't, um, really do that in terms of like activating routes or, or pre, you know, um, 
checking to see if that route's allowed to get to. You really didn't have any way to dependency inject, you know, your other services or your other logic sort of thing. And so um, that part's cool. So they say in the notes, the team notes, that at least in development, not necessarily published yet because, like we said, some of the stuff is coming with RC5, which is hasn't been released yet. But it, at least it is for from development checked in that they are feature, uh, version one feature complete for the router. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at least that tells you that um, it's been a, I feel like a long road <laughs> to get here for the router. Uh, but it's good to know that outside of you know other various you know, bugs that I'm sure that will crop up, um, that for the most part they're there and, and ready for the full release. Yeah, one of the things I'm excited about too with that is the uh, these named router outlets and the whole. I don't know if anybody dove into the auxiliary routes prior to this and what they were trying to do with that and how they kind of. It really wasn't, it was started with that notion. So the idea that, that you have your, you know, parent child route sort of deals with your router outlets. But what if you want another chunk of your UI to have a routed piece, right? Or another good example is what if you want to have a modal, right? So you have a router outlet with some content, child content, and then you also want to have the ability to have a modal that could have different content on in that same uh, view, right? that same component, like how would you do that previously? And there really wasn't a good story for that. And so now with these named router outlets, you have that ability uh, and you also have the ability to then say, okay, how do you navigate away from that? Right? Like, how do you say this, um, the sibling route, right? That that's the sibling router outlet that's sitting next to here. I want to click a button and have that show up, right? Like a modal. And then I want to click a button and have that go away. Right. And so now you have, we have that, architecture to be able to to build those that routing uh, scenario out yeah it's funny when I, I talked to matthias about this who was one of the ones who kind of built the original auxiliary routes functionality uh you know he pointed out which which made me think about it is like it's funny thing with urls that like a url is like a one-dimensional thing but you sort of are trying to jam in there this multi-dimensional concept when you have both like a page and then other stuff like on top of that page because a particular modal can appear on many different pages. So that's like a many-to-many relationship. And somehow you have to represent that in a URL, which is one-dimensional. So like how do you do that? It's like a tougher kind of like computer science problem. So they use these kind of like weird characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, forgot, I forgot even which ones off the top of my head to like depict like the semicolon or whatever it is um, to kind of delineate between the auxiliary route uh, stuff and then the main route um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I guess the one criticism or the thing that I wish, which it may, they may have because I haven't um, looked into this in depth of the most recent router version, but is sort of the concept of the, um, you know, states without a route. Uh, like, I guess this goes, gets into like the state machine stuff, but like, you know, being able to, um, to find that you want to move to this other state, not not a URL, and that includes like bringing up a modal, um, but it's not serialized within the URL. It, it's uh, you know obviously a lot of the stuff in the new router is is kind of built around the URL as that kind of mechanism that drives everything, as opposed to a more um, you know stateless uh, uh, you know whatever state machine type of concept. 
which is it, like that's where the UI router um, sort of uh, shines. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, you know, and that whole concept is interesting in terms of when we got this these client side applications now that are really robust and rich in terms of of how this whole UI works, right? You want to do all these things, but it's almost like you're still held back by the URL because of this, you know, it's like the, the one piece that like you get stuck in and go, okay, oh, man, I have to represent this entire application state somehow in the URL. Right. And, and because I'm sitting in a browser because the, the client could reload this page or wants to deep link this, this, you know, scenario. And it's like, to support that, you run into this, you know, you get this crazy URL structure. How, how do you bring that back? But if there was no URL, a lot of this stuff might go away and you're just kind of, okay, I'm free to just build my app with, with its state and its functionality without having to worry about it. It's almost like a crush that we're held back by, I feel, as we, as we progress forward with these client-side applications that are really rich. Yep. Uh, for the next thing in the in the team notes that I was going to talk about, we actually started to talk about already with the forms. Um, they they do say that they have more features that are actually going to be added with the next uh, release candidate. So actually, more goodness to come. Uh, one thing actually that they talk about here that I, I sort of um, made me think, and it's not directly related to the stuff here, but you know, it, Justin, you may know more about is um, you know what about some of the standards around like how you hook into um, like browsers and mobile devices have like store uh, common fields between different apps and stuff like that, that allow auto complete autofill and everything. And that's like, there's, it's a more tricky thing than you would think to effectively hook into that. Uh, so it does the, um, new forms API like have any support for like kind of helping people along with that or are they still kind of on their own for just like trying to work with um, some of the different standards that are out there like because you, you sort of have to name things the right way and all that you, you know what I'm talking about yeah I know what you're talking about I, I haven't looked into that in terms of uh, and the angular platform for that and their forms and stuff so I'm not sure if they have anything built in for that um, but yeah, I know what you're talking about in terms of, yeah, you end up running, okay, well, I, you know, credit card, do I name it credit card? I have to have named it in a certain way and for these browsers to pick up, like, you know, it's going to be autofill or something like that. You, you know what would be, because I, I think um, for the autofill stuff, it's tricky because you don't, not everybody, you don't, sometimes you don't want autofill. Like it, it, that's where it gets like really tricky. Like sometimes, and sometimes it's based off of like how you name the field. But what I, I think would potentially make sense is as part of like a CLI type thing because we are uh, within the CLI, they're doing a lot of work for like linting and like um, the codalizer stuff. Uh, it would be somewhat interesting to do, maybe I'll, I'll make a suggestion to Mike um, Brocky about um, adding a part for the codalizer to do some like forms analysis of like, okay, if you set certain configuration and like, you know, hey, you know, you know that you can make lives easier for developers if you want to autofill by just changing the name of this to email instead of this other thing or whatever. Right. I don't know. Uh, anyways, that, that was just a, a something else I, I had been working on the past couple of weeks that made me think about that. Um, okay. Next topic here: the CLI. And so, from the team notes, um, you know, one of the things that uh, is a 
big change with the CLI is that before it was built on top of Ember CLI and utilized System.js a lot, now they're moving to Webpack 2. And a lot of it's just like more uh, Webpack-based. You have a lot of reasons for that. Um, but uh, did you have any thoughts, Justin, on uh, sort of the change there? Were, were you aware of some of the stuff that's going on underneath the hood with the CLI? Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because we're, uh, you know, we recently uh, started migrating an app that we've been working on for a while now uh, where we had our own kind of uh, structure pretty similar to the Angular IO um, style guide that's up there now. Uh, but, uh, and similar to kind of the build scenario for the Angular CLI, but we decided to kind of buy in at this point and import our stuff into following the style guide almost exactly. Um, and then also getting Angular CLI into the mix. And uh, the next progression that we're working on is bringing in Webpack into the story. Um, so we're kind of, on that boat on, on everything right now. And, 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 uh, my buddy, Jamie, we were just talking about this this morning and he's talking about the fact that it's interesting that you almost have to, to like experience these things, experience the CLI, experience the web hack. You have to like implement it and which makes sense. But you know, it's like when you have this existing project and you're like, okay, well, how's this going to play out? Right. We've already got, um, tons of components, tons of directives, tons of pipes, tons of framework code, right? How do we, can we, can we switch to this? Right. And, and you have to almost go through it and, and do it to really feel like wh- what's this going to be like? And then what are we going to run into? Right. I think that's the biggest thing with the, the whole, um, especially with the webpack thing. It's like a, almost like a big jump, right. In terms of your build scenario. And then one of the things we're, we're kind of concerned with is the, what, what is that story like? Can you still write your code? Uh, where you're not really writing Webpack specific code, and it's more of the Webpack's doing the the build process for you, and so now you're not you're not architecting around Webpack, you're architecting around Angular and, and your application, and then you're just using Webpack to to bring it all together and the CLI to bring it all together, sort of thing. Yeah, it's interesting because there's this more generalized debate, you know, in the JavaScript community of using. Uh, the opinions of like the community, like, like kind of converging on all the same opinions and kind of doing things the same versus having flexibility. And like, uh, you know, I I think that's a big thing in the react world that they value that like, okay, everybody does things differently, like whatever. It's just like a simple library and we don't have to have everybody do the same thing. Whereas like the Ember, Ember world, it's like the other side of that spectrum where Ember, everything is like kind of lock sync. And if you look deeper into each of the communities, you could see where there is, you know, value in each of those things. So it's like finding the right balance. And I I think I used to be on the side of the fence of like more, I guess, the traditional React side of like just trying to like roll everything your own and that type of thing. But as I've kind of had to bring on more team members, kind of grow the team, it's just there's so much value when like it, you're doing the same thing as other people do things and you can kind of work with them because then it's not just your company. It's not just your small group. It's the entire community, which is huge. Now, if you're trying to do something outside the box of what they're doing, then it can be a real pain because then you're fighting against that huge community. <laughs> then it turns into a negative, I guess. Um, but no, no, I, I, I think as long as 
Uh, there's like flexibility there, which like, it seems like uh, the way that like, I, I trust, you know, Mike and, and the team that's uh, building the, the CLI and sort of the direction that they're doing to allow for like having a good standard set of, you know, this is the way you do things and, and, you know, allowing for escape hatches, which is like sort of the ideal. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I think I'm in the same boat as you, Justin, like I, uh, you know, was not in line with the CLI, but we are actually starting to as well um, do a lot with that, both because, you know, of the reasons I just mentioned, and then also um, for my work with Angular Universal, we're in the process of, you know, building the integration with Angular Universal and the CLI. Um, so I, I do think there's a lot of uh, importance there. Actually, one, one last thing on that I'll mention is um, in the team notes, they, they do talk about, and they mention this at um, NGConf, which is in the future, you know, this sort of utopian thing here is that you never run into this Angular 1 to Angular 2 um, you know, migration thing again. Because if everybody is in somewhat of lockstep of like the way they do things, they can build into the CLI itself these transitions from one to another. So, okay, they change the API. Well, if you're already using the, the CLI, it can detect all the areas of your code where you, uh, you know, use the old API, and then it'll actually change it, you know, for you. Um, that's at least the theory. I mean, what, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> right. um, but no, I, I, I buy into that. I, I buy into that uh, that type of thing is possible, and and uh, that's that's sort of what everybody is kind of hoping for. We want to be building our apps, right? We want to be writing an Angular code to create our experiences and our tooling and that, that sort of thing, that the, the application that we're building. And, and this is stuff that's almost like, man, you start tying in all this time with your team and stuff like that of figuring out this other process and you're really not building your product, right? You're building the, the infrastructure around your product. Um, so it's the, the hope is that you could just leverage something, stand on the shoulder of giants and, and get that, and then you just get to building your product, right? Uh, but I think the, the team thing, you really hit on that. That's the big component there, right? When you, when you start having a team of developers and, and, and people that are implementing this code and, and working on it on a regular basis, uh, you, you want them to have some structure they can go to. And anytime you can get that documentation, that guideline, without you having to write it, it's great, right? So things like leveraging the CLI, leveraging the style guide that's on AngularIO. I mean, you can bring new team members on. You can get existing team members and say, hey, go go read that, right? We didn't even have to write that. Go read it. That That's your reference point, right? We get that for free if we just follow these patterns and sort of things. And so... Um, yeah, it's in a, a team environment that you really end up running into that going, okay, that's that's a win for us, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, one last thing, I, funny thing I wanted to mention was that I, I don't know too much about this at all, but I, I uh, just speaking of the value of this, um, you know, and I, I did mention how the traditional React mindset is kind of rolling your own stuff and kind of having the framework not, not be that imposing. But I should mention that they are talking about creating a CLI, CLI for React as well. Like they, they, this is this is a common problem dealing with you know build tooling and, and kind of getting out of your way so that you can focus on your app. Um, so I think even in that world where it seems like to be the most on the other side of the fence, uh, I, I, I don't know if everybody is going to you know buy into it because you know there's, there's definitely some people in that world that. Uh, they just 
always will roll their own and that's kind of the way they think. But um, there's at least a subset of the community that it does believe in the kind of CLI and kind of common way to build things mindset and are starting to work on something for that. Cool. Now Mike's going to be on next week, right? Yes, that's uh, right. That's that'll, a good. I'd be really good. I got some questions for him in terms of <laughs> the uh, the how we do the the templates or the um, recipes and stuff. Can we customize that? And then that whole stack trace thing that the things barfing out right now to the console. Can we uh, get some love in there in terms of how that looks mm-hmm. and stuff? So yeah, we'll hit him up. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He's gonna get grilled. He's gonna be. Sorry, he agreed to come on. Here. We'll make him feel um, love, though. He'll he'll, oh, he'll feel it. Warm hug followed by a headlock. Yeah. Um, and then actually, just looking uh, speaking of that for the next couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, Mike's coming on next week, and then Sean Larkin, who is part of the Webpack Core team, is coming on in two weeks on August second to talk about Webpack Two and all the great changes there. And then uh, we had rescheduled the show. That we, uh, Patrick and I were going to do a tutorial on Angular Universal, some tips and tricks and whatnot. And so we rescheduled that for the week after that, August 9th. Um, okay. So last topic I wanted to touch on, and then we can get to our picks, is uh, the big one. And uh, I'm hoping that <clears throat> this type of thing we don't have to bring up, like, every show for the next, like, year or something, but the release date of Angular 2. Now, one thing which I actually did not look at until I started kind of uh, uh, searching around for this is that there is a page, uh, github.com slash angular slash angular slash milestones, where they have listed out, I don't know how accurate this is or whatever, but um, the team did list out what they perceive to be the final milestones needed in order to have the Angular 2 release. Now, the thing is, on that page, I suspect that this is not 100% accurate because it has here that it's 27%, and I'm almost positive that it's actually more than that. But um, what, what are your thoughts here, uh, Justin, on as far as the uh, release date goes? Does this, looking at this page, does it um, seem accurate to you? Does it seem like uh, we're you know, behind that? What, what do you think? Yeah, we've been following that milestone um, through the the past releases that they've done, and it's been pretty consistent. Um, you know, I think it's a, a percentage of how many issues are outstanding. You know, so in terms of, I don't think it tracks really time wise. If some of those issues take a long time, right, to work out, um, but it seems like it's been pretty consistent in terms of their list of issues. They decide that that those are going to be the ones that are locked into this, you know, RC four, RC five, that sort of thing, and then you can watch and as those progress. It, it doesn't seem. It seems like they're. Um, uh, you know, scrum process, whatever it is, is not getting things from the backlog pushed in during their sprint, right? So uh, it, it feel, it, up to this point feels like, okay, yeah, 27 left, 15 left, 10 left. Yeah, we're on track. I mean, when they when RC5 had like one issue left, it wasn't that many days afterwards that, uh, I'm sorry, RC4, that RC4 was released, you know? So I think it's pretty a good way to follow it. But again, it's, I don't know, you know, if one of those issues is just going to take, a month, then really don't have a gauge of that. But um, other than the, the issues that they're getting through, it seems pretty good. So I don't know. I mean, I, one thing at this point now, I'm just hoping for stability, right? Like that's the, the big thing of, of, okay, nothing changing, right? Things can get approved upon. Cool. We're getting closer, but you know, I want the, 
are the forms locked in? Is the router locked in? Or, or can we start really aggressively building against these things and teaching these things and talking about these things? And they're going to stay pretty much the same. And they're just the, the guts of them are going to get more performant or a new feature here and there sort of thing. And hopefully we're, I don't know. I, I want to say it feels like we're, we're close to there. Um, but I guess we'll see as time, time goes on. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. I agree. Actually, fun, funny thing with uh, what you mentioned with <laughs> the sort of agile process of like managing some of these uh, issues or whatever at uh, Wells Fargo when I worked there, it was always funny that we had you know, our scrum board with, you know, I mean, maybe look a little bit like this, that we would actually try to do like a burn down chart and whatnot. But we would have that the problem that sort of you were starting to allude to where <laughs> you'd start to let's just like add stuff throughout the sprint. Like it wouldn't be locked in and it would just be like a never ending burn. Like it, the, the burn charts would always look so weird. Like you would never see something where it actually burned down to zero. Like that never happened. It would always be like, you know, start to burn and then like come up and then it would just like stay there. And then eventually you'd just be like, okay, this is the end of this sprint. Let's just move on. <laughs> right, right. Anyways, but uh, no, I, I hear you. I think that um, uh, we're closer than probably if you just look at this 27 complete, uh, you know, and then the amount of time that the release candidates have been around. Um, I have a feeling that I haven't looked through all of the open issues, but I have a feeling that there's a lot of like smaller stuff in there that will like this will expediate at some point. But. Yeah, I, I took a look at it uh, like a couple weeks ago, and it looked like a lot of the stuff felt like they were just nothing too major, right, in terms of those issues that were on the list, even all the way through to final. RC5 and final, it felt like there wasn't too many, too big things. I don't know. Yep. Cool. All right. Let's get to our picks. So, uh, Justin, why don't you start off with your pick? Yeah, so my pick is uh, the show Mr. Robot on USA Network. Uh, just started season two. Um, I don't know if you guys are watching it. Uh, hopefully you are. Uh, it's a pretty amazing show. They're they're pretty technically accurate in terms of their stuff. There's also a lot of uh, basically shows about this kind of hacker culture sort of thing and changing the world sort of thing for the people who haven't, haven't known about it. And then uh, follows this hacker, Elliot, and... Um, just a bunch of code stuff that's in there. Uh, I think last season we saw some JetBrains tools on the screen there. Uh, just kind of a neat experience in terms of as you're a developer and seeing something that kind of good cultural references that, that really hit the mark. They, they're doing their research sort of thing, a lot of fun stuff. But um, then just the storyline uh, as really as the as season one went through, it really ramped up and the season two just kicked off last week. And it was pretty amazing two episodes that kicked it off uh, in terms of, uh, just film and cinema and TV sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I, I love that stuff. So it's, it's pretty exciting. So that's my pick. Um, it is kind of more of a kind of a R level type of show. So for younger viewers out there, probably not going to be in your bag, but I have a feeling that you've got something that that could be for all ages. So, but that's my pick. That's cool. Yeah. And I actually have not watched Mr. Robot, but it is on my kind of list to get into. I, I typically these days just have like one series that I'm like going through at a time. Um, but I, I definitely will check that out. So that's cool. Thanks for the uh, tip there for me. Uh, it's also a show. It is star Wars rebels. Now I don't know if anyone out there is as into star Wars as I am. Like, I you know everybody, most of the times people techies are pretty into star Wars. Like I've gotten to the point where, uh, you know, I, I actually watch like a lot of the fan uh, fan made stuff out there. Like, I, I'm probably into it too much, 
Um, so it was cool seeing at Star Wars Celebration, which was a conference last week, that they had a bunch of new trailers and, and clips and that type of thing. And so they had the trailer for the new Rebels season. And I think that if you ask, you know, a lot of Star Wars fans, they're, it, they're actually split on Star Wars Rebels traditionally. It's like a cartoon on the Disney um, network. And the first season especially, and a little bit the second season, you know, some Star Wars fans hated it because it was like a little bit too kiddie, like too uh, not really, uh, I guess, uh, Star Wars enough. I don't know. But this season, they've, they've uh, the end of last season and like what it looks like for the season, they're really picking it up. So if you liked um, the Clone Wars, like I, I think it's more in the vein of that, like Star Wars, the Clone Wars cartoon show, uh, which was amazing. I think this upcoming season is going to be more in the vein of that. And it's going to looks it looks like set up a lot of the stuff for some of the movies that are going to be uh, coming up, including Rogue One, which is going to be in, in December. So, uh, yeah, that's all I'll say is, uh, you know, definitely check out, if you, if you even if you haven't already, Star Wars Rebels on the Disney uh, network. Um, yeah, if you're a Star Wars fan, I mean, you got to give that series a, a chance. you got to get through to the second half of uh, s- season two. It gets really good. Uh, especially if you uh, watch the Clone Wars, uh, check that out. The, the animated series uh, it starts tying into that uh, really well. And then, yeah, this uh, the teaser for season three. I'm all jacked up on it. Um, it's pretty exciting. I mean, but the, the cool thing too with that series too is that they take a lot of the the Ralph McQuarrie concept art right and throw that in. So there's all these. Even though it starts out season one is kind of the whole Disney cartoon kind of feel. There's all these Easter eggs in there for older generation. Um, people that that are big star wars fans that especially with the the concept art and stuff you see you get these characters that were um original concept art for job the hut and now there's this character here that 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 concept art is is a character in this show and it's it's a lot of cool uh, easter eggs for the older audience i think i mean you got to give it a shot definitely cool All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Look forward to next week with Mike Brocky talking about the CLI. Thanks a lot and have a good one. Thanks, see you.